Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, church. Let me begin by telling you about a missionary. He noticed that there was a woman who was helping a a family with household chores and with the local language, and she was upset. So she asked some questions, and she learned that the helper was pregnant and that her and her husband had become unexpectedly pregnant. They were thinking of aborting the child. It would be their second child. And the missionary immediately contacted her friends here in the U.S. for some financial help. And she then sat down with her helper and told her that for the next two years at least, that there would be enough money to provide for the needs of their family and the child coming. And the husband and wife were not Christians, reportedly at this time, and they didn't have convictions against abortion, but when they heard the news, they were static, as you might imagine. That financial aid gave them confidence that they could care for their child, so they chose not to abort, thankfully. And the missionaries felt that they had done something, and done something to show the love of Jesus Christ for that family, and that's what we try to do with our sidewalk counseling prayer ministry when we can. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be? We are surrounded by needy people all over the place, especially in this time of the pandemic and the coronavirus. So they're not likely to hear us if we preach to them, if we are not backing up what we're preaching. But they may listen if we do something, if we do something to help them serve them. And that, in turn, may open their hearts to hear the really good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel when we do preach it to them. And that's love. That's love from the family of God, and that should just come naturally as an overflow from being a Christian. So as we look at the context or the background of this book, think, being precedes doing. But all Christians must be doing based on who they are based on being. That is to say, we who are in Christ should live like Christ, look like that. Jesus told us that we would know a tree by its fruit, right? That's the same idea. In other words, we've been learning in this letter so far that the habitual practice of our life, it proclaims and it pictures who and what we are to be. And this text elaborates on that idea again. So join me in prayer, if you would, once more. Lord God, open up our eyes to this truth that in a a day where there's a lot of doubt, a lack of assurance, a lack of security, we're thankful this text applies that to our lives, offers that to us, for those of us that know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So Lord, a day where we observe the Lord's Supper, Right here online, I pray you'll do a great work by the power of your Holy Spirit to open the eyes and ears of hearts, Lord, that are not sure where they stand with you and where they stand with you in relation to the church, their relation to it, and that this text, this message, would be used by you to transform these people, transform lives today, that people would come into the kingdom and be ready to manifest that, to show that by their love for the family of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This book from the Apostle John, as you can gather, has been about giving true believers eternal security. 
assurance of salvation. And that's a big deal. I think that's a good thing. And the way John does that is by having us take a number of tests, proof tests of our faith having to do with both belief and behavior. There have been the doctrinal tests, which start with how we believe about Christ, and then there's the practical and the social. And John basically gives us three themes, three major topics that he goes and circles back and forth to in terms of categories for these tests, and they are the tests of truth, of obedience, and love. Let me repeat that, because they're that important. Tests of truth, obedience, and love. And we took the test of love before when we were back in chapter two, and here he builds a bridge of our habitual way of life we talked about last time, back to the test of love for the family of God here in chapter three, which love for the family of God is simply a mark of a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. So we're going to flesh that out this morning. So, and by doing that, we're going to tell you about what the love of family is not, the love of the family of God is not. Then we'll tell you what it is, and then we'll give you a picture of what it is. So let's begin here with what the family of love is not from verses 11 and 12 of the text. And we'll start with verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now, John starts to teach, again, remind us of this command, and he's done this before. He's talked about this before. The message from the beginning was introduced at the beginning of the letter. It simply means that these are things that the early church was taught with respect to the gospel when it was birthed at Pentecost about 50 years before this letter was even written. And specifically, the message from the original language, the message is a command, it's an order, circles back, if you might remember, to chapter 2, verses 7, and the beginning and middle of verse 8. Let me read that to you again. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard, and which is what? It's true in him and in you, meaning Jesus. It's a new commandment that I am writing you, true in him, true in Christ. So there's a difference and how this commandment plays out now today. The commandment to love actually goes back to chapter 13 in the Gospel of John, and it is by virtue of the fact, you have a purpose clause here, we find out why it's different, how it's different. I want you to go back, we mentioned this last time, from verse 10 of 1 John 3, and it says that whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, does not love his brother. And you see John 13, and we'll get to that in just a second, but when we first talked about this test of love in chapter 2 just a couple of months ago, I'll tell you how the command was old. It came from the Old Testament. It came from the Torah, from the book of the law. But in another sense, as I'm saying, it's new now because of the way Jesus demonstrated it. And there you have John 13, verses 34 and 35. This is at the foot washing, that Thursday night, the eve of the Passion. They're coming into the Passover, right, the first Lord's Supper, and Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples or followers if you have love for one another. This is a huge theme in this letter, 
that the Apostle John is circling back to over and over and over again. And you should know that to see how important that it is. In chapter 3 of this text, and in verse 23, it says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, and we love one another. If you skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, knows God. See the connection he's making there. Verse 11 of that same chapter. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says the same thing in verse 21, in chapter 5 and verse 2. And even in 2 John, chapter 5, in that small letter, in that one verse, he says, and now I talk to you, the dear lady, not that I'm writing you a new command, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is a constant theme for John, meaning it's to be a constant theme for us, the church of Jesus Christ, to pay attention to, all right? So how does he start to teach us and remind us of this command? Well, he's the black and white apostle. He believes in teaching. I love that about him. He gives a lot of contrasts that are very stark, and one of them here, starting with a negative example of what love is not. Good teachers often do this. Before I tell you what something means, they'll say, let me begin by telling you what something is not, to draw a contrast, because our mind tends to go to extremes and contrasts. And that's what he's doing here. Look at verse 12 of our text. John writes, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did they murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His deeds, Cain's works, his business, according to the original language, were evil, and his brothers were righteous. And that harkens back to verse 8. Your deeds will prove whether or not you're in the faith or not. And appropriately, John's going back to the beginning of mankind here to illustrate this command to love in a negative way by giving us the exact opposite of it, disobedience to this command, in the person of, listen, the first murderer of human history, Cain. You might find that surprising, but most of you know the story, right? Cain was Abel's blood brother, okay? They were sons of Adam. God asked them both to bring forth an offering, sacrifice of worship. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not. And then a sense of jealousy from a heart of hate enters into Cain, and he struck down, he killed his brother. The literal Greek language used here talks about a slaughtering, a butchering of his brother. And even back then, what you're seeing is the difference in the human heart between what we talked about last time, righteousness versus lawlessness or evil. A hateful heart is a murdering heart, is an unloving heart, and therefore a non-Christian heart. You see the thread there? That's John's logic here. Cain's behavior just followed his belief. His beliefs followed his heart. His heart was not right with God, it says in the text. He belonged to the evil one. Evil has that sense of wickedness. The metaphor back in that day for darkness, so obviously talking about Satan. Cain killed his brother because he belonged to the enemy. Now, you might say, okay, I get that. This verse is not for me. I haven't murdered anyone. Most of us have not. And you're saying, I'm not planning on murdering somebody, especially a member of the church, right? I'm glad to hear that. That may be true physically. The question is, what about spiritually? Do you want to kill someone? Have you had those kind of feelings? 
The only major difference, people, between the heart of hate and a murderer is the physical act itself. The point, according to Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount is, if you hate or despise a brother, not necessarily a blood brother, could be anyone, member of the church, he said, you will be liable to judgment, which is why you should first be reconciled to a brother before giving your offering in worship, or you even do that, and that would be love. So the application here I want to give you is twofold from this point. Number one, the true believer should understand who it is that does not love us, the way Cain hated Abel. We're going to be hated, possibly even to the point that someone could kill us, right? There are people that hate the church. Verse 13 picks up on that idea. So there's either the love of a brother or the hate of a brother, and that was the case with Cain. And then the second point is that those that carry hatred and evil intent in their heart, feelings in their heart like that, towards another Christian, listen, they cannot be a real born-again disciple or follower of Christ. Let me clarify something now. A true disciple from time to time is going to be angry with a fellow disciple. That happens. You can be frustrated or disappointed with them, but if that's not eventually confessed and repented of, dealt with, and if you're going to continue to carry that bitterness and that hatred toward that person in your heart, and you don't want to do anything about it the rest of your life, then this verse is equating you with Cain, a murderer. That's a serious charge. And may I just add, in case you're wondering, the beauty of the grace and the mercy of the gospel is that a murderer can be forgiven. Amen? Forgiven of that sin. You may not remember that the Apostle Paul put many a Christian to death before his conversion in the book of Acts. All this stuff is all over the Bible. Moses, you might recall, killed an Egyptian before he left Egypt for the first time. This happens throughout history. You know, there's a man in New York City serving a life sentence as a serial murderer for multiple cases of murder, leading people to Christ. He's the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. It's a compelling story. Again, the idea is that a born-again believer will not continue in the sin of murder, will not practice that kind of lawlessness. You get the difference? So now that you've seen what the love of family is not, family of God, I want to show you what the family of love is for the family of God, which is found in verses 13 to 15. Verse 13 of the text says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Hates you. Hate and murder is of the world itself. That's a connection. Not surprising, right? In fact, the Greek word for surprise carries this idea of amazement, wonder. So you could translate that as, don't wonder why, you shouldn't wonder why the world hates you. The Lord has already warned with his disciples that this was to come, this hatred would come. In fact, in the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter, you're going to see that where the Lord Jesus is very clear in chapter 15 and verse 18, where he said, if the world hates you, no, that it has hated me before it hated you. It hated me first, it's going to come after you in some way, shape, or form. And then he repeats that with the reason why in John's Gospel in chapter 17 in the middle of verse 14. I want to point that out to you as well. He says, the world has hated them. He's praying to God the Father in the garden, and he says, and the world has hated them, his disciples, 
because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're guilty by association, folks, literally, in Christ. We've talked about this before when we went through the test of worldliness back in chapter 2, which, which should surprise people who are Christians, is this. If people of the world system, its philosophy, way of thinking, and lifestyle, worldview, if they don't hate you, if some don't hate you, but they love you and treat you as one of their own, that would be a red flag. Because remember what the Lord Jesus has said, you are to be in the world, but not of it, not belong to it. And if we are of it, if we do belong to it, our hearts and our minds and our members, then we love it, the world, more than we love God. And that's John's talk, not mine, from chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. So in fact, people, if you want a pretty good idea, a confirmation that you're saved and in the kingdom of God, look at your own life right now in Christ and see how the world reacts to it, how they respond to you. See if the world hates you. Do you get sneers, frowns, moans from people when you talk about Christ and the gospel? And they say things like, um, why again? Or in response to a, a decision you might make not to partake of something that they're doing, that thing they do in their lifestyle, because your way is different than theirs. Well, if you get those kind of groans and stares and separation, that may be the world's hatred for you right there, confirming that you're alive in Christ and that you live in the light. Here's a real confirmation of that. Look at verse 14 back in the text. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides or remains or stays in death on their way to eternal death. See, John's giving us another because here, a purpose clause, that if you have moved or crossed over from the kingdom of darkness and death into life and light, right, moving from the status of unredeemed into redeemed, as the Lord's talking about in John 5, then you're a true believer, and that will be seen, noticed, by your love for the family of God. So this means new life means new love. A new life means new love. So what you have here is a remarkably clear message that when a person is saved and becomes a Christian, they have an entirely new attitude about the local church, about what the church is and what it means and towards fellow believers, entirely different from what it used to be before Christ. Born-again believers, because of their new nature, they're going to love their brothers and sisters in the faith as opposed to hating the, fa the family of God as they used to, as a habitual way of life. And this verse, again, really destroys the idea behind the question, can I be a Lone Ranger Christian? Or in other words, this is the answer to stump the pastor question. Can I be a Christian and stay at home, not be involved in the church, but I'm a Christian nonetheless? I don't mean staying at home because you have to for health reasons or a pandemic. All right? Sorry to say the answer is no, not according to this text, which is up to now been saying pretty clearly, if you don't love the family of God, the local church, you hate the church that Christ loved so much he gave his life for it, then you're hating what he loves, and you can't love what you're not a part of. That makes sense, doesn't it? There are no exceptions. There's no conditions here. 
It is incompatible, is what I'm saying, to profess faith in Christ and not want to be a part of his faith family, the universal church, beginning with the local church. One goes with the other. And if you don't want that, that means your heart just isn't right. And worse, you may not even know Christ as your Savior. If your attitude is this, I can't stand the thought of going to church, being part of church, hate it, boring, people bother me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's not good. Rather, the new proof of the new birth, the real disciple of Christ is, I love my church. I can't wait to be there, to be a part of this, to see and be with God's people, worship and fellowship with them, prepare my heart to do that, to love them and serve them. That's what this passage is about. And then John goes back to contrasting that truth. I want you to see that in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding, staying in him. The word for murderer here is an interesting one. Only John uses it in the New Testament, uses it a couple of times in this passage, and it literally refers to a killer of men. And it's a parallel word to the one Jesus used to describe Satan in John 8.44, Satan murderer. You hate the brothers, murderer. Again, that affirms what we went back to in chapter 2, that if you hate God's people, you show yourself to be a hateful murderer as a member of the devil's family. It's hard to hear, but true. That kind of person is not going to possess eternal life because of the condition of their heart. And the heart that is capable of hate is potentially capable of murder. Look at a parallel thought in chapter 4 of this letter in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, listen, he is a liar, according to John. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. It's pretty compelling. Again, John's reiterating the simple fact that loving is hating, hating is murder. Incompatible with the faith. Like someone once said, hate's like acid. It damages the vessel, the container that it's in, and that it's stored, and then the object that it falls upon, that it's poured upon. So hate equals murder, and that's not love. So finally, what does love look like? Because the love is in the verb form of this noun, agape love, that you've heard so much about. Let's talk about what family love of God looks like from verses 16 to 18. Verse 16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What is the best way to recognize divine love? I would say what we're observing today with the Lord's table, which is the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his cross work. It's the greatest act of love in the history of the world, how I look at it. Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what makes the gospel such awesome news. And that's a good parallel for what we're talking about here. And again, this verse echoes the command that the Lord gave in John's gospel. Again, I'm going back to chapter 15. Listen to chapter 15 in verses 12 to 13. The Lord said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. You've heard this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. 
which is precisely what Jesus was about to do 2,000 years ago after saying this. This is love in action. This is the greatest example of the love of God and for the family of God. It is the agape or sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. You know, it reminds me of that title, that Christian classic book by Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. Well, let's imitate him. And let's imitate him this way. This is what we are to do. In chapter 2, verse 6 of this letter, John wrote, whoever says he abides in him, who's ever with Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Interesting. And it says in this verse, we ought to lay down our lives. We ought to lay down our lives. And that's a Greek word that means we're obligated to. It's something that you owe. We owe this to not only our brothers, to the Lord, out of an attitude of gratitude. And he repeats that moral obligation in chapter 4, verse 11. And then he puts it even more emphatically. I got to go to chapter 4 again, verse 21, where John wrote, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's not an option. This is not the book of first opinions we're talking about. This is 1 John 4, 21. It is a command that we love our brothers. Now, there is a sense in which we love our church family with our attitudes as well as our actions, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, Paul talks about the fact that love is patient, love is kind, it's not rude, it thinks of the best for others, and etc. And those are attitudes. We are to call, we are called to actually love people we struggle to like. We talked about that before. But the big difference here between the test of love in chapter 2 and this text is the difference between attitude, primarily, and action, or between fellowship, and then here, sacrificial service. Most of us, let me be clear on this, most of us are never going to be called probably to be martyrs of the faith or the faith. Most of us will probably never have to literally lay down your lives, take a bullet for another member in the church. But this is why perhaps John is using a different word for life than the Greek word for physical life. That's not what John chooses to use here. But the word that he chooses to use is that we lay down, which literally means to put something down set something down, our lives and the lives of our hearts and our souls. Psyche is the word there for the family of God. In other words, the idea and the imagery is the sacrifice of your life. Just like the Lord commanded us. Remember, he said, pick up a cross, die to self in terms of repentance. It's that same kind of idea, because if you think about it, the first law of our physical life is self-preservation. Well, the first spiritual law of the Christian is self-sacrifice. Now, how does that look? How so? I could take you to the Lord's foot washing of John 13. We talked about that, a very menial act that he did in service and ministry for the disciples. We talked about that before in describing love. There's the familiar story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. That's a classic illustration because that pictures that love is the meeting of needs. You want a definition. What does love look like? What's the picture? Verse 17 of the text describes it. Look at it. First John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart. That was a metaphor in the Greek to literally shut the door of your heart, shut the door of compassion and mercy. And if you do that, it says here, against someone, separating from someone, how does God's love abide in him? You see, it's a proof test. And keep in mind, the first phrase I just read to you says, whoever has goods or wealth 
in the world, meaning someone that has the resources to help a brother. That person is to help. And you could even argue the believer that's aware of that need should meet it before the person in need even has to go first to their church to ask for a benevolence offering, such as we'll be collecting later in our service today, as we always do on Lord's Supper Sunday. So that's a hallmark of the faith. And I've had the blessing, I've had the privilege of see, seeing that in action in our church family time after time after time again. So the example of the Good Samaritan, okay, just to picture that again for you, remember is a man who cares for a neighbor, a virtual stranger he's come into contact with, he's lying in a ditch, injured, side of the road, he's bleeding. The man, the Samaritan, passes through. His first thought that comes to his mind is not, hey, this guy's family, I'm sure, is going to come by eventually, look for them, they'll take care of him. He doesn't say, he doesn't do that, or he doesn't think, well, this guy is a Jew, and he's a member of a synagogue, and I'm sure somebody from that congregation will come by and help him out and save him. And he doesn't have that idea of saying, well, I'll go back to the inn after they take care of him, and I'll collect a reimbursement of whatever I laid out. He doesn't do that either. In fact, the other two men, the Levite and the priest that came by in the story, and they know the command of love. They should know better. What do they do? They're the ones that close their heart to this man that was injured. Whereas the story says, after tending to the man's wounds himself, the good Samaritan, he took him to an inn, think hospital. He took care of him. He said to the innkeeper there, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So Jesus said the good Samaritan is the one that showed sacrificial love for his neighbor by his mercy, and it wasn't even a brother by faith, mind you. And Jesus said to this lawyer and those questioning, you go and do likewise. And that's a parallel challenge here to our text. Remember, people, what the context is of the story of the good Samaritan. A lot of people lose sight of that. It begins with a lawyer saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to be saved. He wants redemption. And what does Jesus do? He begins by pointing him to the mirror, the law of love, the command we started with back in verse 11. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says that because he knows the lawyer knew the law of love. He says, hey, I've loved my neighbor, like the law teaches in Leviticus. And Jesus, in essence, responds by saying, really? You think so? And he tells the story of the good Samaritan. And in other words, is saying, have you laid down your life? Have you given of your possessions, inconvenience, sweat to love another person? And you know why the others in this story they didn't love, they didn't meet the needs of that victim. Well, what's the big point of this message? They were unredeemed. They were of the evil one. They didn't love like they should have because they couldn't. Agape Christian love sacrifices and meets needs some way, somehow, beginning with the family of God because it's the heart of a Christian to do so. Paul put it this way in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and listen, especially to those who are the household of faith. And it won't be often with money. 
It's not only money, although everyone can probably give almost something, little as it may be, no matter how little. It's really talking about going the extra mile with someone, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, here's my tunic. Whatever I have is yours, and we've seen so many people in our church do that, in fact. It might be making and delivering a meal to someone. There's many ways to love. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Okay. I'll give you a picture that's very relevant to our times today. You know, convenience is huge, not only in South Florida, all over Western civilization. We like our comfort. But what I do is I see the love for the family of God from God's people often coming in the form of inconvenience, going the extra mile, the effort, people sacrificing precious time and effort, convenience to serve somebody. I've said it before, you help somebody move today to pack up a truck full of stuff to move to another home with the sweat and toil involved there, I think that's love. I think there's a picture of that. I've seen it in our church. Somebody comes to give our missionaries that went to Cuba a ride to the airport between 4 and 5 a.m., I think that comes from a heart of love. I think that's love for the family of God. I've seen some of our people stay behind a fellowship to address the needs of a car, maybe that wasn't starting, jumping that car, doing some maintenance, what have you. That's love for the family of God. And I know brothers who have done that because they remember something. They remember, as we're remembering today, at the Lord's table, Jesus' sacrifice. He laid down his life for them. They remember the Savior's sacrifice. How often do we think about the sacrifice on Calvary, where Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for our sin with torture and death on the cross? Even in the midst of mundane activities like we've talked about, we can remember the thorns, the nails, the spear into his side, the loving heart of him who gave his life for us. That thought should just lead to a life that overflows as we conclude here with verse 18, the final verse of the text. John writes, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know what that's about, right? It's pretty self-evident. Our actions speak louder than words. It's either put up or shut up. The unbelieving world, the skeptic of the faith, the unchurched, the non-Christian, they're looking at us right now. They're waiting for us, the professing church of Jesus Christ, to live more like Christ. And I like that John included himself in this pronoun, us. All-inclusive. Everyone's included. You know, there's a famous quote that's been attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. He said this, supposedly once, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. End quote. A comment like that, if true, in some respects is unfair, I think, because so many professing believers are unbelievers. They're nominal Christians. And so we get painted with that broad a brush. But if it does say something, it can be said that the true invisible church doesn't always walk the talk that we should. In fact, the New Living Translation of this verse, a modern paraphrase, commands us here, not to merely say that we love each other, 
but let us show the truth by our action. You see, the world knows our love cannot be real love for neighbor if we don't even show love for brothers and sisters. That makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, this is why John uses two different words in Greek to contrast the difference between what we say as opposed to what we do. Word there, word and talk. Word is the speech, literally would refer to the oracles of God, Old Testament prophets. So he says, yeah, there's a lot of that talk, religious talk, but what else? So it's a negative reference, as it were, to preaching, pontificating about the Lord with nothing to back it up. And then the other word, talk, there, glossa, which is where we get the word in English, the tongue from, is just speaking of words. We just talk a lot. I mean, we talk a lot about world events, current affairs, from a biblical perspective, blah, 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 blah. And there is no walk to match that kind of talk. No action, right? All talk and what? James says, therefore, we are to be what? Doers, not only hearers of the word, right? Doing is loving, and our love meets needs. In fact, he said in James 2, 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's a good question. It's like the person that receives a need in a prayer request and says, I'll pray about that. What is there to pray about? According to this text, the Christian's gospel witness has to be consistent, people, in both word and deed, walk and talk. That's why I often say that when we're talking about evangelism and making disciples, that we have to both show and share Jesus Christ. This verse says we're to put our love in action, in yes and in truth, because love also speaks the truth. But truth and love, according to Ephesians, means saying difficult things, difficult truths, gospel truths that has to be said, but with some tact, with some gentleness, meekness, and self-control, so we can gather and keep a, a listening audience. We have a unique opportunity right now in our coronavirus world, folks, to, to put this text into practice right now and in the months ahead, which is what our new 111 initiative about is at in our church, which is take one day at a time to pray for one unbeliever at a time, an unchurched, unsaved person, and share with them Jesus Christ, to show and share Christ. Who's your one? And then, one day at a time, contact one fellow member or regular attender of your church family if you don't belong to Christ Community Church, and certainly for us at CCC to encourage and pray for them and see how we can serve them. Is there someone in our church right now who you know is hurting and needs encouragement and needs some ministry? And start with a kind word, a visit when possible, when safe, right? Or an encouraging call, just a text even, or for a neighbor across the street as well. Would that not be a good witness of Christ and his love in a world that has is missing quite a bit of love and hope? Amen? So let me close by saying this. We've been talking about choices and contrasts here. Again, tests between two clear paths, ways to go in this series that we call basic Christianity. Two habitual ways to live. Last time we talked about that, righteousness or sin. We've talked about the world or God, truth or error, light or darkness, life or death. Today it's been love 
or hate. So I'd summarize the passage this way by a picture that John gave us. Which example should Christians follow? Cain or Christ? The way of Christ, of love for the family of God, is what Christians are to do. Have you passed that test? If you have, let me tell you, the Lord through the Apostle John is saying here that you may know today, you may actually know today you are a real believer. You have assurance of salvation. You have eternal security. You are a citizen of the kingdom on your way to glory. However, big however, if you fail this test, or you don't even care about the results of it, you don't care to even take this test, what John is saying is you may very well be an unbeliever. You might profess, but you may not possess saving faith in Jesus Christ. And what does that make you? a citizen of the kingdom of the evil one in darkness, and that puts you on a path to hell and judgment forever. Is that what you want? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the word that challenges us in particular that profess faith in Jesus Christ, that if we are in Christ, we're abiding, staying with Christ. We're keeping and being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. We will love, not hate, our brothers and sisters in the church. We love the local church. You love the local church. Lord Jesus, you died for the local church. And we are thankful to be a part of your family. You are our Abba Father, Lord God. Our Daddy, our Papa. What a blessing it is to say that. We have that kind of intimate fellowship and relationship. Lord, however, for those that are hating the church, they detest or disdain the church, work in their hearts. They may very well be belonging to the evil one as Cain did when he murdered his brother so many years ago. May they turn to you away from that heart of hatred and sin wickedness, darkness, and make a commitment in their heart to want light, to want the life of Christ, to want forgiveness of sins, the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, a new and abundant joyful life now and forevermore. May they do that by trusting in Christ alone for having paid their sin debt for their sin, so that if they confess with their mouth and in their heart Jesus is Lord, master of their life, and he has been raised from the dead. The scriptures say, whoever does that will be saved, will be redeemed, will rescue, be rescued from judgment, and will have eternal life instead. What great news that is, Lord. May those tuning in take advantage of that and commit to it right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.com.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 